over communicate everything. And that's something I'm still learning. But, you know, between what you think you want to say and between what the other person thinks they've understood, there's a massive decay in quality, you know, and then you never know, like if when you're telling something to the whole company, people are on the phone or like doing something else or whatever. So like just over communicate everything and make it very transparent so that people understand what's happening. Because otherwise, you know, people, they feel left out, they draw their own conclusions, they match, you know, this data with this other fact. And then, you know, they start kind of like going down a rabbit hole and getting confused. So yeah, over communicate and communicate very early. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Huma, and it's great to have uh, our guest today, uh, Miguel Fernandez, who is the co-founder and CEO of CapChase. Uh, welcome, Miguel. Hey, Alex. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, where Where are you today? I, I heard some beeping cars. It, it made me think of uh, uh, New York. Uh, am I correct in that? You're correct. Yeah, I'm in the middle of New York in the Flatiron area. Um, so yeah, out of one of our offices. Very cool, very cool. How comes, uh, uh, coincidentally, maybe I've never asked you this, uh, how comes you chose New York uh, for your, your HQ? Yeah, so we started in Boston when we were at business school and you know, in the middle of the pandemic. So we're literally working from our rooms, from our like, dorms kind of. And then um, when we started to grow the team, we were trying to find people that had done FinTech before. Right, so we started hiring, and, and, and also I had to be in the East Coast because most of our engineering team was in Europe. So then we started looking at, you know, like East Coast, you know, fintech expertise, and they were all in New York. So we started hiring a team in New York, and then when we, when the pandemic was over and it was time to to move somewhere, you know, to HQ, all of our team except two of the founders were in New York. So then we just moved there, and it's great, man. Like, Makes the sense. It's great. Sense. The city is amazing. It is very expensive, but then also again, it's really close to Europe. And very well connected. Yeah, yeah. I love New York, and I haven't been there uh, since pre-pandemic. Um, so hopefully, you get to return, if not this year, next year. I could be here, man. Good stuff. So, Miguel, we always ask our, our guests the first question, you know, because we want to know a little bit more about who you are as a person. So, who is Miguel Fernandez? Yeah, well, um, I guess like you always said, like I'm the CEO and co-founder of Captures, but I think that just like this is what I what I am right now, right? Um, I'm originally from Spain, so I grew up there. My mom was an entrepreneur, my dad was an entrepreneur, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, right? So kind of like grew up like with, with that um, hunger uh, within me. And then I always liked, you know, watching things grow, whether, you know, playing with toys where you're like kind of like building something like Legos and stuff like that. And then um, just trying to, you know, figure out ideas and understanding how things work. So. Uh, you know, in that spirit, I went to, to study engineering, mechanical, and then nuclear in Munich. Uh, and then I never worked as an engineer in my life. So only a couple of internships. And then I worked in consulting, and I felt that the problems that I was solving would never be useful for a company that I built because it was just like for these massive enterprises, you know, with very like niche problems. So then I actually decided I really wanted to learn from tech and how to actually start a tech company. I tried doing two on my own part-time and they both failed miserably. So I was like, okay, I need to learn from somebody who actually knows how to do it. So I joined the pre-revenue SaaS company 
in Spain as the first person in sales. I didn't even know I was going to do sales. I thought I was going to do strategy, which was, you know, like aligned with my consulting background. But then I got there and they were like, hey, you got to call these people, all these companies and get meetings with them. And I had always hated that. But I did it and then it worked. And then I actually ran, well, set up, built and ran the sales and customer success teams and the international. And then I was like, okay, I think I need to learn a little bit more in order to do it myself. So then I went to my MBA at Harvard Business School. And that's, you know, where we started researching CapChase, where I met one of my co-founders, the two came from the previous company. And then we started CapChase in the first year of school and eventually, you know, dropped out. I feel like now, as you said at the beginning, like all my identity is like somehow intertwined with CapChase and, and like that's like all I am. But I like to do other things as well, you know, like helping other founders to figure out, you know, the initial stages of a company and, and so on. Um, but I love everything tech. Do you, do you have any spare time for hobbies uh, <laughs> or, or is, it, is it is it all 100% CapChase? Yeah, I would say it's like 95% CapChase. Um, I was looking back, man, and for a year and a half since the beginning of CapChase, I didn't do anything. Anything, like, not a day off, I didn't do sports, I didn't read, nothing. It was just captures. Um, and I feel that now, actually, you know, as, as um, you know, like, it's more of, like, working on the business as opposed to in the business, I have a little bit more time to do, like, sports and, and read. And that actually makes me much more productive and creative and makes me, like, go for longer, you know, and, like, with, with, with new ideas as opposed to getting yeah. stuck. Yeah, no, 100% agree, agree with that. Good And, in fact, actually, today... Uh, I sent out like to the founder members sort of um, uh, newsletter uh, and just kind of like the intro piece was just like, hey, I've just come back from two weeks vacation. Uh, I didn't do any work like because it was a vacation, right? Um, and there was no Gmail, there was no Slack and that just allowed me to kind of have space which actually then enabled me to kind of, even though I wasn't really trying to think about work, I thought about work, I thought about strategy, and it just kind of, you know, it was very kind of helpful. So, yeah. you know, making sure that you come out of the weeds as the CEO and, uh, you, you know, give yourself space and do exercise and read books and all of this sort of stuff, it's yeah. like super important because uh, it, it's stuff that help, you know, kind of helps you move the dial, right? Move the, move the needle instead of being in the weeds, uh, as you said. Um, uh, Ali, you, you mentioned about like in terms of who you are, your, your parents were entrepreneurs and you like building stuff. So is that why you became an entrepreneur? Because you, you're coming from that, that background and kind of growing up or what, what were you, you know, what would you say the reasons are? I think that background made it easier, you know, because like I grew up, you know, used to seeing people take risks and then sometimes those risks worked, sometimes it didn't, but it was okay. You know, like you could always see that, hey, like if it didn't work out, like something else would work out at some point, right? So I think that's a, a massive privilege that, that I've had, you know, like in terms of like my mindset and so on. Um, and then I just really, really like, you know, building things, you know, I'm watching things grow from, from nothing. So I really like, you know, gardening or like, well, plants and stuff, right? Um, so, so then that like entrepreneurship is the closest thing to watching something grow from scratch and then having a lot of agency in it. And then I just really don't like being a cog in a wheel, you know, where you know that if you one day didn't go to work, somebody else would be put in your place and, you know, nothing would happen. Nobody would care. I really want to have agency in what I build and, and, and then, you know, have a mission that I want to accomplish. And when Capsis came around, I was like, this is what I need to do. So you built CapChase. So what is the story uh, behind that? You know, the founding story. Why, why did you build CapChase? Yeah. So when I was in, in the previous SaaS company, you know, before, before business school, um, I was running a sales and customer success teams and every single deal for three years, we had the exact same friction. 
the customers wanted to pay monthly or late, you know, like even large public corporations, they wanted to pay 90, 120 days late, right? Um, well, after the, after the, the license. Um, and we as a company, as a SaaS company, we needed the cash up front because we had all these upfront costs like, you know, CAC, sales, well, commission, salaries, marketing, implementation costs, data costs, a bunch of different things, trainings, right? That then, if people paid monthly or late, it would take us a lot of time to recover and we'd basically be plugging VC money into signing up customers. So then, in order to get all that cash up front and kind of like, you know, get going and the more customers we signed, the more cash we had, in order to get that, we had to incentivize people to pay early, right? Or, or upfront with pretty large discounts. So between 20 to 30% annually. And that was um, terrible as well, because then like we were lowering our average contract value. We're lowering our growth. We're lowering the total you know, lifetime value because it was impossible to get people to pay more for the same service over the, the years. So, so yeah, it was kind of like the, you know, the lesser evil, but not great. So then we just thought that that was a pain we had to deal with as we grew as a company until we achieved pricing power. Anyways, so then after three years, went to HPS, I started looking at the intersection between SaaS and FinTech. And one of the, you know, like realization moments that we had was like, hey, what if we build a tool that enables SaaS companies to offer flexible payment terms, but get all the cash up front? So imagine that a SaaS company goes and says to a customer, hey, this is like 15K per year. And the customer says, hey, can I pay monthly? or late, and they say, yeah, use CAPTIS for that, right? So then we started talking with founders, and they loved it, but they started to ask, like, hey, why don't we do this for all of our existing customer base instead of for a deal-by-deal -deal basis, you know, just moving forward? So then we, we saw that that was a massive pain. Essentially, how can a SaaS founder turn all their you know, customer base into cash now to reinvest into more growth, you know, build, you know, a, a, a larger customer base, do it again and again and again, right? So they would be less dependent on equity money. Um, and yeah, you know, like we started talking to founders, they loved it. That was our first product. And, you know, we started with the mission of, you know, helping SaaS companies grow faster with uh, capital, insights, tools, community, right? So, so yeah, we went to market at the end of August 2020. So a little bit less than two years ago after racing a seed round, then we dropped out of school and yeah, I started growing like crazy. And now, you know, we are at th that really cool inflection point where we are you know, number one in SaaS financing. Now we're actually starting to hit on the original mission, you know, like launching new products and, and so on. And, and it's a very, very exciting time. And the founders, the, the way that we got together, three of us worked together at the previous SaaS company. I was more in the go-to-market, they were in product. And the fourth one, uh, Pshemek, I met at HBS. He came from a growth equity investing background. So got like pretty um, diverse team for the beginning. And now, you know, we've grown a full leadership team, of course. Cool. Very good. Very good. And congrats on the, uh, the, the success in a, a short space, uh, space of time. Um, what, what data can you share about the business? You said you're, you're kind of number one in, in, in this market. You know, what are the, the growth rates, headcount, revenue? You know, how much capital have you raised, et cetera? Yeah. Um, what can you share? Yeah. Well, so, yeah, like I mentioned, you know, the SaaS space, I think that one of the choices that we made was to just focus on one vertical and do multiple products for one vertical as opposed to focusing on one horizontal product for a ton of verticals, right? Because, you know, starting with lending, you really need to understand the companies you work with. And then I feel that, you know, when you build different products that complement each other, then you can start to build like brand effects, network effects, you know, some kind of virality if you enable 
a relationship between two parties. So that's why we chose only SaaS. And it's been a massive, I think it was a great, great, great choice in the past because right now we've seen that you know, companies that were lending to multiple verticals are suffering, right? Um, in terms of how accurate the choice was and how that related to metrics, since the beginning, we've raised around you know, 100 plus million dollars in equity and 800 plus million in, in non-dilutive capital to give to our customers, you know? So pretty big numbers. I would have never thought possible, you know, <laughs> two years ago that, that was possible, but here we are. And then, for example, last year we grew 20X. This year we're growing like crazy. We're seeing, you know, like a 50% demand growth month over month from March to now because of how weird the environment is for raising money. And, and yeah, we're working with companies, well, thousands of companies in 11 countries. So US, Canada, and then most of the European Union and the UK. So, oh yeah. And then in terms of people in the team, 110 odd people. And, and yeah, growing aggressively, specifically in, in product and tech. Great stuff. We've seen uh, at Sastock, and I, you know, I've seen the last two years, and as you say, the cap chase is just over, t uh, you know, two years old. The kind of the revenue-based financing category, you know, kind of come out of nowhere. There were some like uh, previously, if I look back over the years, companies a little bit like Lighter Capital and some others were mm -hmm. were around. Uh, but really, the last two years, RBF has like become a really kind of like hot space. Uh, but on the CapChase website and through, you know, speaking to, uh, to to you and Henrik and you guys use the term sort of non-dilutive capital. So what is there a difference between non-dilutive capital and, and RBF? Um, you know, why do you use those kind of terms? How do you, differ, um, you know, what's the thought process around that? Yeah, uh, good question. It's, it's quite nuanced. So I think RBF is a subcategory of non-dilutive financing. So non-dilutive is any type of financing that doesn't involve dilution. So usually doesn't involve a change of ownership or, or, you know, like ownership stake in a company. Uh, so you could go from mm -hmm. like grants to subsidies to, um, you know, any type of debt, right? So I think the difference, we call it non-dilutive financing because for us, RBS or revenue-based financing involves, you know, some kind of, you know, financing event, like very akin to debt that gets repaid as a fixed percentage of the revenues of a company, right? So then imagine that you take a million dollars today and then you start growing like crazy, then you're gonna pay back a fixed percentage of your revenue every month. So the faster you grow, the more money you pay back every month, so the faster you pay back, right? Um, with us, it's not the case, right? It's every SaaS company knows exactly how much you're gonna pay back per month for the following six, 12, 24 months. Um, so it gets raised to bake into assumptions, it gets raised to understand the cost, and then um, to basically you know, build it into the like recurring operations of a company. Makes sense. And um, given that the space is quite hot, there's quite a few competitors uh, out there. Uh, you, you know, we, we know a few of them. There's a lot that we don't know. Um, how do you uh, sort of like deal uh, and differentiate yourself? How do you think about the competition? How do you differentiate yourself from, uh, from the competition? Yeah, I think we, we, we took the choice early on to really focus on SaaS and really understand SaaS. And that's allowed us on the one thing to have a better price than anybody, and then to build products that help SaaS companies specifically, right? So one of, one kind of like flywheel or, or virtuous cycle is that you start working with SaaS, you really understand SaaS, then you're gonna get like a cheaper cost of capital, then you can work with the best customers, then the best customers have the best performance, and then that leads to lower cost of capital, and so on, right? So the, the flywheel just accelerates, and that's been great. Um, and the second thing is that 
you know, from the very beginning, we wanted to help funders to not only access capital, but also understand how much to access, when to access, and then how to put it to work, and the impact that that would have on the business. So we launched an analytics product that helps founders understand everything about the business. So from, the, from costs to you know, um, cash status, runway, to a bunch of revenue data, you know, like what is the lifetime value, what's the CAC, how do the cohorts look, you know, how do they compare against any other peers, um, and then you know, predict when they're going to need more funds and the impact that those funds are going to have on the runway and the rest of the metrics. So what we're trying to do is instead of just tell them, look, here's a million dollars, take them, you know, and, and, and use them as you, as, you, as you see fit. We're trying to, t- to tell them like, hey, actually you could access a million dollars or a million pounds or a million euros, but if you, the, the right cadence to draw that money to make it, you know, the cheapest for you and the most optimal, you know, for, for a lift in your metrics is, for example, to take 200K this month. Take zero the next month because you have a few renewals coming up and you need it. Take 250K the following month, you know, and then as the company grows, everything gets calculated automatically. So then they can access more and more capital so that they depend less and less on, on their own funds, either bootstrapped or on VC funds, you know, if they, if they are like VC backed. So, you know, it's like adding more sure. intelligence to so, the financing and just focusing on SaaS so that we understand SaaS better than anybody else. Do, do you see, um, the, given that uh, non-dilutive RBF is, le- well, let's say a nascent sort of industry and, I mean, I couldn't probably name more than 10 players, but there is probably like many more than that. I'm sure you, you know yeah. the answer. But do you see, as it's an alternative to venture capital, um, and, but also can complement, you, you know, venture yeah. capital. But do you see that given that there's thousands or maybe tens of thousands of VCs uh, or funds, you know, globally, will this be the same in a few years' time with uh, RBF and non-dilutive? Will you, will you see tens of thousands or, of competitors? Or do you think it will be a smaller kind of concentrated market? That's a very good point, actually. Um, I think, you know, there are a ton of VCs because there are few economies of a scale for being a VC. Actually, like if you have a massive VC, it gets even harder, right? Like you see Andreessen Horowitz with 30 billion under management, they need to return mm-hmm. on average 6 billion per year. That, that gets really high, right? So actually like VC, uh, I don't think that that many economies of scale. I think in RBF, we are starting to see, you know, some consolidation in this space because if you are a small player, you can really compete, right? Because you have a much more expensive cost of capital. You have way less data to actually understand a company. Uh, so we've had a ton of companies come to us to see if we wanted to buy them, right? Because they were like either local players or they haven't figured it out or they're having like bad performance, right? So we are seeing consolidation. And I think that this, um, if it's tech driven, you know, as opposed to a bank, it can lead to consolidation. I have just like a couple of like very good players because the more that you learn about the data, the more products you can build to solve more pains and the more the sticky you get into a customer and the more data you get again, which allows you to underwrite better, to have less risk. And then it's sort of like you start getting like exponential development, which I think is really, really hard to get as a VC, right? A VC, like it's very dependent on a person, on a GP, you know, on their expertise, on their, you know, previous track record. So yeah, yeah I think that there will be a lot of consolidation, <clears throat> similar to like what's happening in banks, right? Like there, were, there used to be thousands of banks and now they're like just a few very big banks in this country. Yeah, yeah no, in, in, good point. Um, and in terms of you, you mentioned around the scalability of 
the solutions that you, you have versus the, the VC uh, game. And I, I was listening to a podcast actually this morning as I was walking to the gym uh, to give myself some space to, nice. to think. Um, and uh, they were talking about VC not really being a team sport, but an individual sport. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, it, it really kind of counts for the fund. Like you might have one or two uh, individuals that are these star performers yeah. uh, that will really kind of, you, you know, bring in the, that, uh, the returns. You, you know, the, the 100x kind of valuations, but then you have quite a few that are not performing. But here you're t we're talking about the tech and it's scaling and, you, you know, the, the, the difference there. So uh, I hadn't really thought about it uh, that way, but, uh, uh, but good to know. Um, what about, like, now, like, the lessons from building CapChase to date? Uh, you, you know, it's only a couple of years old, but, you, you know, great growth and lots of capital raised, you know, scaling globally. You know, what are your main lessons from building CapChase to date? Man, I think we made so many mistakes and, and, and like so many lessons learned, and, and it's great to see you know, kind of like the learning curve that we've um, hit on personally. You know, um, I think that one big learning lesson is um, choose or as opposed to and. You know, I think that last year a lot of people were choosing and, including us, like trying to do everything at once because like money was infinite very, very cheap. You could just do whatever you wanted. Let's try multiple things and let's hire people to do them. Then actually now it's like all about or, like let's be very deliberate. It's almost like, what do you want to do? Like push, you know, like all your strength behind a really, really small area or all your strength in a massive area where you can really apply pressure, right? So it's like similar philosophy, but choose your shots, you know, and just go all in. And then if you need to like pivot or like it didn't work, then go and do something else. Because the, the feedback cycles, the learning cycles can be way, way, way faster. And then the team feels focused and you really see real progress in a few things, um, which I think is critical. And then two is um, hire faster and fire faster even, right? So a lot of the time it's like, hey, I think we're going to need, you know, like a VP or like a person here. And you kind of like try to string it along. And then you suffer, and then when you find that person, then suddenly a bunch of problems disappear, and you're like, shit, I, I wish I had this person like six months ago. And same with firing, right? The moment that you find that somebody's just not gonna make it, you're just doing a disservice to them, you know, by you know, keeping them in like stuck in a place where they're not going to succeed while they could be looking for something better for them. Uh, and then for the company, it's also terrible because like everybody knows, you know, when somebody's like not performing or when they're just like not in it, and then you can see that kind of like if people see that you no, know, you are rewarding like poor performance, you know, poor behavior, then that really, really can hit culture, right? So um, anything people related, just like nip it at the bud, you know, and, and then also, I guess the third largest lesson is to over communicate everything. And that's something I'm still learning. But, you know, between what you think you want to say and between what the other person thinks they've understood there's a massive decay in quality you know and then you never know like if when you're telling something to the whole company people are on the phone or like doing something else or whatever so like just over communicate everything and make it very transparent so that people understand what's happening because otherwise you know people they feel left out they draw their own conclusions they match you know this data with this other fact and then you know they start kind of like going down a rabbit hole and getting confused so yeah, over communicate and communicate very early. Yeah, no, no, good, uh, great lessons there. Not good, but great. Um, and definitely on 
Uh, I mean, I agree with all, all of those. And over-communication is something that I learned and put into practice as a leader, certainly during COVID, because, uh, I, and I, I would hope that mo most, most did, but certainly, you know, in like uncertain times, uh, you, you know, when the, the team are, you, you know, they do, you don't want the team in the dark, right? So you've got to basically put everything on the table. And uh, that's certainly what we, um, uh, you know, we did. And it, and it was super helpful, right? It was, uh, let's say, transformative, you know, for people to actually see, hey, right. look, you know, this is where the business is at. And this is what we need to do. And um, yeah, like great, uh, great stuff to over communicate. And we, we, we're keeping that on. Um, what about like you, you mentioned also you've raised like 100 million equity, 800 million uh, in non-dilutive sort of capital, which you're deploying in the SaaS companies. Yeah. Um, so you've raised a shit ton of money in, you know, a short space of time. Well, what, what, you're obviously, you know, good at it. Uh, what lessons uh, have you uh, got from fundraising that you can share? Yeah, I mean, in a particular case, you know, um, it is really different to raise equity than to raise debt or create facilities. Um, like, let's see, equity, it is, you, you kind of like, want to position the company as, you know, this can be a massive success and equity investors are aligned to think that because if they, if it doesn't work out, they lose the money. If it works out, they can make a hundred, a thousand X, right? Um, then investors on the contrary are like way more cautious because if it doesn't work out, they can lose the money. If it works out really well, they're going to make two X, you know? So, so then like it gets really tricky. The experience that we want to provide to founders, you know, is that, hey, raising actually debt or non of capital should be as easy as clicking a button, right? Like not even like raising equity. But my lessons learned, right, is I think that the, the market has changed a lot since we raised our series seed A and B and now, right? But basically, you should, as a founder, you should think of a company divided in two, two areas, right? Like the value of a company has two parts. It has the intrinsic value and the option value, right? The intrinsic value is how much is a company worth now, right? Like based on the current cash flows and the current revenue and the current customers, you know, and on everything, like what is the company worth now? And the option value is how much can this company be worth assuming that you hit on your roadmap, you know, that you continue to grow, that you continue to capture your time, gain market share, you know, and so on, right? So then that's balance between intrinsic and option value shifts. At the very beginning in seed, it's all option value, you know, and then it's more intrinsic and less optional, right? The later stage you go, people are going to look at like, what have you built? Like, show me what you've built. And then, yeah, I'll discount aggressively what you say you're going to build because you already have a track record, right? So my advice is, on the one hand, the process is start early, you know, get to know the people that you want to work with, look at what they've invested in, you know, and research them and see who, which GP, you know, which partner in which fund, you know, um, your company fits in you know, as part of a thesis, as part of an area of expertise. And then, depending on the stage, I think that you need to get really good at storytelling. So I think that American people are really, really good at storytelling. I think us Europeans are a little bit like more shy, you know, or, or more realistic, but like get really like storytelling. If this works out, how big can this be? You know, and draw like a very good story between what happens before your company exists like, what is the problem that a user is facing, that a company is facing, and then what happens afterwards, right? And then bring them along the journey. Like, hey, life sucks, life is amazing, you know, when after people are using your product and the impact that can cause. And then the further you go, like, you really need to know your unit economics, your metrics, and be able to show them well, you know, like your cohorts, how do people behave, how long do they stay, you know, how do you absorb them, what are the emotions? Because then at some point, what people want to know is like, hey, 
if I give you a dollar, what are you going to turn that dollar into? You know, are you going to turn it into a dollar of recurring revenue, in which case it's amazing, into 0.5, into $10 of recurring revenue, right? So being able to show like what does your factory line look like in terms of like you put a dollar here and X dollars come out of here uh, is critical to get people very excited and to show that you're like in it, that you know, you know? I'm sure um, there's been, a, well, not a million, but uh, a whole bunch of things that have really helped, you know, with the growth of Catchase and the success of Catchase today. But if you could distill it to kind of one thing uh, that has really moved the needle, like one decision you made or the company, something the company has done, uh, what one thing has moved the needle the most uh, for Capchase? Okay, let me say one thing for the market and one thing internally. I think the market was really helpful and the timing was really helpful. We started in the middle of COVID and it was the first time you know, that a bunch of founders all across the world had access to capital that wasn't equity, right? People started to get like government subsidies and COVID relief grants and, and you know, like uh, loans from the governments. Yeah. And they, they saw that, hey, there is, this is just money. You know, this isn't, money is green, right? Like I can use this money to grow the company in the same way as equity, right? Um, so that was a massive, you know, shift in, in mindset. And also, you know, there are more and more second and third time founders that are really optimizing for a capital structure. Um, and then mm -hmm. internally, I think the biggest choice, without a doubt, was to just focus on SaaS, you know, because we gained such a massive advantage over every other competitor. Instead of chasing revenue growth for revenue growth, we focused on SaaS. Yeah. And that has allowed us to build, you know, a lot of visibility in SaaS, enterprise value for investors, for partners, you know, just like being very good at one thing as opposed to trying to be everything for everybody. Yeah. No, no, good stuff, um, and we love that uh, around focus and for the listeners when they're, um, as you say, not don't try and be everything for everyone, really kind of narrow in on your ICP, on your vertical, exactly, uh, and you know, try and be the best uh, at that, so uh, great advice there. What about um, the best advice you've ever received, uh, which has kind of helped you? Yeah, um, it's very meta, right, because it's advice about receiving advice. But I remember, <laughs> this is kind of like a personal story. I remember when I was like in my second year of, of uni, you know, I was um, in summer complaining about how all my friends that were studying, you know, like not, that were not studying engineering could have a lot more free time. We're having so much more fun. We're traveling, you know, we're going out and I was studying uh, so much, right? And kind of complaining. And then my mother set me down and, and she was like, hey, look, wh why are you saying this? Like, wh where have you heard this? I'm like, well, it's just like my other friends um, I just partying all the time and you know like I'm, I'm studying and I feel like I'm not enjoying this like five years of uni because I'm just like studying head down and she was like look you need to understand you know when people give you advice or when they tell you something you need to understand first of all where are they telling it from so what are the circumstances and two what do they want because if you don't have the same circumstances and you don't want the same the advice is not worth it right so, so then that actually I was annoyed when she said that but looking back, you know, I, I see that as an inflection point in my life, you know, and then I went to study nuclear engineering in Germany, started, you know, like being very self-driven and so on. So that, you know, when people give you advice and it's so easy to give advice for free, right? Like understand like, hey, why are they giving me that advice? And why is, you know, why does that make sense in their circumstances and with their ambition, you know, and forward, look, and forward looking? Uh, and does that, is that apl applicable to me or not? What's the hardest thing about being a CEO? Oof, man, I think it's all, I think it's 
dealing with a bunch of escalations and people at different emotional stages, you know, throughout the day. And, and then, you know, having to go from one to another very, very quickly. Right. So it, it gets really, you know, like when times go really well or when times are not going that well, you're always like dealing with like micro problems, micro challenges, micro friction and everything like in the end escalates to you or the hardest things escalate to you and dealing, you know, with get like getting on par, you know, different emotional stages with different people throughout the day is really draining, I think. And then, you know, it's just like, that's what you need. That's what we need, you know, all those like little hobbies and sports and time off. Um, and then like try to get something creative, like reading like fiction and so on, because otherwise you just run the risk of like becoming flattened by the weight of it, right? And then I guess like, you know, as you said at the beginning, but like it gets, it's impossible to switch off. Like whatever you're doing, there's always a part of your brain that's thinking about problems, about opportunities, about ideas, about how to communicate things, and that gets uh, tough as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm aware, and I, I know most entrepreneurs that I know uh, that I, that I've spoken to, um, you know, kind of say so it, it's very difficult to, or almost impossible to switch off, as, uh, as you said. Uh, and you, I, you could just be in the kitchen, and I'm staring into space. And I'm thinking about either, I don't know, good things at work or whatever, or just kind of work in general. And, and, and Gemma, my, um, you, you know, my, my other half, she's just like, you know, hello, like, what are you thinking about? Like, what's, what's going on? I'm like, well, just in a, diff in a different zone. Uh, and it happens that that's just like, you know, daily basis. And I think you get, you get used to, uh, or your partner gets used to living with, a, uh, with, with an entrepreneur like that. But I, I also know, but this is more anecdotally, a lot of CEOs, um, you know, and founders have unfortunately, you know, separated from their their wives or their first wives or, or husbands because they're constantly twenty four seven, you know, thinking about the business. And sometimes it's very difficult to put your partner or family first because sometimes they put the business first, and and that obviously, you know, doesn't uh, is not a good uh, sort of mix, you, you know, for long lasting relationships, right? So you got to find that 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 balance um, uh, for sure. Um, what about your uh, your daily routine? Uh, you, you know, so Miguel Fernandez, you know, Monday to Friday. Uh, so we don't care about the, the weekend so much. But um, what what do you do? You uh, you know, on a daily basis, what time do you wake up? You know, what happens between that and starting work, uh, during work? You, you know, to to the time you sort of like go to bed. What does a daily routine look like? So let's see. We have. You know, a big team in Europe as well. We also have a team in, in SF, and I'm living in New York, right? So I'm kind of like in the middle of time zones. Um, so I try to wake up quite early, you know, around 6.15, something like that, so I can get a workout and then go to work early, you know, at around 8 or, or quarter past 8. And then I have a quite a decent overlap with Europe as well, right? And then the mornings are usually filled with meetings because that's when I can, I can speak with the international leaders, you know, with the tech leaders that are in Europe. Um, and then in the afternoons, I have more time for, you know, thinking and then meeting with people, like virtually most of it, to be honest, and meeting with people um, in, in the US, uh, in, in, in any of the coasts, right? And then um, at the end of the day, I'm, do, I'm going to more and more live events, you know, maybe like one a week or something like that to meet other founders, set up like a, kind of like a founder support group, you know, where we just like go through problems that, are pretty much horizontal across any any entrepreneur business, you know, entrepreneurial business, and and help each other out, you know, with 
sharing best practices or like just like giving support. And then I try to see, you know, friends every once in a while for dinner, you know, during the week, just connect and, and just like really, sorry, disconnect from work and connect with them. Um, and then I try to, to read uh, at night, you know, just to kind of like wind down. I don't really watch TV that much. Only when I'm like working out or like on, on, the, on the indoor trainer, you know, in, in, the, in the bike at winter. Because, I don't know, man, I feel like, I feel like it's not really productive or like I, I don't learn much. So I'd rather read, you know, like really like just like go on a different universe than, than, than watch TV. Oh, what, what time do you go to bed? I call my mom every, every morning <laughs> or pretty much every morning. Uh, I go to bed at like, yeah, yeah, you know, 11, something like that. So try to get at least like seven hours. Um, what I, one thing that I do is that no matter how late I go to bed, because sometimes, you know, you're just working or you can't sleep or you like go to bed at 2 or 3 a.m. I never, ever, ever wake up later than, than 6.15 or 6.30 and miss a workout right like because then when you do that that's when like you get jet lag right like your whole schedule shifts yeah and then i'm grumpy or moody you know so i don't miss that yeah fun uh how, how often do you work out you work out five days a week seven days a week i'm probably like six days a week so during monday to six. friday it depends like varying level of intensity and then on the saturdays yeah. i try to do something with friends like call it tennis or running yeah. or you know boxing whatever yeah from my experience when i'm now you know working out five days maybe six days a week uh, and i have a very specific routine you know from like waking up yeah. to you know doing a bit of reading to exercise to walking the dogs to having a shower then a cold shower and if i don't do that my morning is terrible like yeah. i'm like all of a sudden really grumpy and just a very different person so you need to kind of you know stick to that and to find what work, what works for you yeah. um now, uh, I've just come to the time. So obviously you're speaking at SASDOC uh, uh, in Dublin this October. Uh, so excited to uh, welcome you to Dublin and uh, you know, probably the best live event you'll go to this year, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Um, uh, do, you know, do you know what you're speaking about uh, yet? And also, uh, CapChase uh, you, you know, are gonna be there. What will CapChase be doing? Um, you know, any secrets you can uh, give uh, for, uh, for those that are listening? Yeah, well, I'm First of all, I'm so excited to go. I, I really, I, I know, I mean, when I, since I've met you, you know, and, and we've done like a, a couple of virtual events, like I know the quality is gonna be super, super high. I'm very excited. I think what we're gonna talk about, we're thinking about like what would be the most relevant thing for SaaS founders. And I think, uh, you know, it's kind of like knowing how they should be doing, right? Like a lot of the questions that we get is like, how are my peers doing? You know, like, am I doing better? Am I doing worse? Am I going faster? Am I going slower? How should I, how much should I be spending in these areas, right? According to my state. So fortunately we have all that data from thousands of SaaS companies, right? So I think that we're going to structure the chat about what does, you know, good look like? What does great look like? And then what are the, the key lessons that we've structured from thousands of companies and thousands of founders, you know, to help just other founders, you know, kind of like, avoid mistakes and, and skip steps, you know, in order to, to make a great SaaS company. And while we're doing a cap chase, I think we are going to try to connect with as many founders as possible. You know, we love meeting them and learning from them. I think we're going to be organizing, I don't know, like drinks or a party or something with, with, with you guys just to, to get people to mingle as well among them and yeah, disconnect and form relationships, which is like the key thing on all that events. Learn, meet other people, and yeah and, and and yeah and get better and get better as a company as well definitely excited for that and we know data data driven talks uh, go down really well uh, at sas so given that 
you've seen inside thousands of uh, SaaS companies, um, I think a lot of good data to to share. So that, that, that'd be exciting and be fun times uh, uh, as well. Um, uh, two final questions. So favorite business book, uh, if you have one, and what are you currently reading? Uh, and then where can people find you online, Miguel? Nice. Um, so favorite business book is, uh, I think it's The Everything Store. It's about Amazon um, and why I liked it. To me, it was like a little bit, you know, like opening eyes, like, wow, this is so cool. I really like two things. I really like the flywheel effect, you know, on how they talked about flywheel, about Amazon flywheel, which is like, again, like lower prices, get more volume, that gives you less prices, then you get more customers, you know, et cetera, right? So that the flywheel effect, which I think about flywheel all the time in, in, in capsules. And then I also like that think, thinking about, hey, what parts have you created? What technologies have you created to run your business better? And is there a way in which you can actually sell it to somebody else? You know, like AWS. They did that to manage their own warehouse. Then they said, hey, this is amazing for everybody else. And now it's the highest you know, gross margin, the fastest growing product that Amazon ever, ever built, right? Um, so we think that about that as well. And it's something we're putting into practice. And right now, I just um, finished reading a couple of books. One is uh, Crucial Conversations, which is about, it's actually like business book, whatever. It's about mining for conflict, you know, and like getting teams to perform better by being willing to have it hard conversations and how to have them, which I think is a critical skill for any founder and you know, any executive. And now I've actually started reading um, a book called uh, Maybe You Should Go and Talk to Someone, which is about a therapist that goes you know, to see a therapist as well. Um, you know, and, and it's just like I'm really interested in human psychology you know, and how people think and how they react to emotions and so on. So trying to learn more about that. Great. Very cool. You rem reminded me that I still haven't read the Everything Store, and I need to. Um, so definitely going to do that. And crucial conversations. I mean, they all sound like uh, good picks. I haven't read any of them, so uh, we'll yeah. add them to my list. And I'm sure many of the listeners too. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. And, and where can people find you online, Miguel? Oh, yeah. uh, on LinkedIn, Miguel Fernandez, uh, or Twitter. I think it's uh, Miguel M I G U E L F Larea. And then my email. I'm very approachable. Miguel at Captures.com. Great stuff. Well, Miguel, thanks so much uh, for coming on the SaaS Revolution show. Really enjoyed uh, speaking to you, learning from you uh, today. And, and thank you so much for sharing your lessons with the SaaS community. Super excited to see you again you know, in October at SaaS.22. Uh, um, and so, yeah, can't wait for that. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Miguel Fernandez, uh, CEO and co-founder of CapChase. Thank you so much, Alex. Likewise, it was great to chat with you. And you made me think a lot and learn the process. So, so thank you so much. Looking forward to the SaaS talk. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.